Welcome to the Didache Divine Service. Tonight is session two. We will be covering a major portion of the second table of the law, the fourth through the eighth commandments, uh, utilizing the readings from Mark's gospel, Mark chapter two, verse 23, through chapter three, verse six. It is all there for you on the white handout. If you did not receive it, it's at the door. This is for you to take notes on, to take home with you. And the peach cardstock has the spoken liturgy for communion, including the confession of sins. That you can return each night. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, whose compassion never fails and who invites us to call upon you in prayer, hear the heartfelt confession of our sins and receive our humble supplication for your mercy. Spare us from the just punishment of sin which our Lord Jesus Christ has borne for us and enable us to serve you in holiness and purity of life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hymn 581, stanzas 5 through 9.
You should have recognized that the stanzas of the hymns sung tonight are meditations on the fourth through the eighth commandments, which we will be covering tonight in an overview of the second table of the law. Last week, we ended on the first three commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, in which the triune God of love, who has created and redeemed us, says to us, trust me. The second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, in which God says to us, pray to me. Out of our trust in the heart, we call upon God in prayer, relationship between the first and the second commandments. And then the third commandment, the Sabbath day, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy is about the rest. Sabbath means rest that comes through God's word. God's word is that which creates trust. God's word is the basis of our prayers. So the first three commandments kind of have a circular description of the Christian life. The baptismal life is to hear the word whereby faith is created, trust in the heart, that we call upon him in prayer. And that's the rhythm of the baptismal life. We noted last week in the preaching of John the Baptist that he was preaching repentance, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that the people came from Judea and all around to the Jordan to be baptized by John, confessing their sins. So in his preaching of the law, he showed them their sin and how much they needed Christ, whose way he was preparing. And so they came confessing their sins, and they were baptized. We talked about repentance as a faith word, to be turned from relying upon yourself, which is always self-righteousness, it's always introverted, self-centered, to the realization of one's sin and that Christ is the one who loves you and has redeemed you, and it turns you from relying upon self to Christ. That's conversion when it happens the first time if it's an adult that has never known Christ. To be converted is to be brought to repentance that first time away from trusting in yourself to trusting in Christ. And with that, there's a confession of sins and then baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So uh, one of the features for this year's session of Didache will be a lot of readings from the Gospel of Mark. And before us tonight, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, Mark chapter 2, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Now it happened that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also 
gave some to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the Sabbath day in the Old Testament was Saturday. And the rhythm of life was established by the Lord God at creation. The six days of creation, ending on Friday, culminated in the day of rest on Saturday, where the Lord God rested from all of the work that he had done. And so that pattern was established in which the Israelites were to rest on the seventh day, commemorating that which God had done. It was the pattern for their life. Their work was to stop so that they might rest in God. And what the third commandment from last week highlighted is that it is God's word that gives rest, peace. The peace of sins forgiven, comfort, rest in God. The Jews had turned the Sabbath day of rest into the work of not working. Let me say that again. They had turned the Sabbath day into the work of not working. So when Jesus and his disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath day, under that scheme, what were they doing on the Sabbath day? Working. Working. Can't do that. Then Jesus has this exchange with the Pharisees, challenging him. And he asks the question, is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? To kill or to give life. And the deviousness of their heart is evidenced in that they say nothing. They won't dare to answer him. They also want to have something to accuse him with. What diabolical evil it is when Jesus, this man with a withered hand, a deformed hand, says, stretch it out, 
and the hand is restored so that he can now be useful and work with that hand. What a diabolical accusation to say that the giving of life or the restoration of life or the restoration of creation is evil, but that's what they said because they immediately then plotted to try to destroy Jesus. The Pharisees had a radically different view of the law. Can we learn morality from the law? What do you think? Yes or no? Can we learn ethical, moral behavior from the law? Yes, absolutely. But is the law given by God so that I have the ten points to follow so that I can get the stuff in my life that I want? In other words, is it a rule book that gives me the guidance in how to satisfy my appetites and desires? No way. But this is how the Pharisees viewed the law. We will see it in two weeks when we resume after St. Michael and all angels with the rich young man who says, good teacher, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? He wants to know what work to do so that he can please God and then gain the inheritance of eternal life. For him, the Ten Commandments, the works of the law, were not to serve the neighbor in love, but rather to serve himself. Now, with that as a backdrop for this, I have eight questions for you, some of which I've already begun to answer. Why did the Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath? Because they were plucking grain on the Sabbath. What is the meaning of the word Sabbath? I just gave it to you. Can you repeat it? Rest. Rest. So Sabbath is less about a day and much more about the rest that comes from God. Does anyone know why Christians principal day of worship for 2,000 years has been Sunday, which is the first day of the week, rather than Saturday, which is the seventh day, and the Old Testament Sabbath. Does anyone know why they changed that? Nicola. First, it was the day of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. And second, it testified to what Jesus did. He fulfilled the law. The Sabbath law was fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, every day becomes a Sabbath when every day is occupied with God's Word. So when you have daily devotions, when you read the Scriptures, when you pray the Psalms, when you meditate upon the Catechism, when you sing the hymns, that makes the day holy. It makes it a Sabbath day. The Sabbath is not about the work of not working, It's not about us giving to God. It is rather him serving us and giving us the rest that comes through his word. But the Pharisees had a radically different view of the word of God and of the role of the law. What did Jesus teach? This is number three. The Pharisees about the Sabbath when he reminded them of what David did when he and his men were in need. This is a, more of a thought question for What was he teaching them 
Have you not read from the Old Testament what David did when he was hungry? He took the showbread, which is the bread of the presence in the holy place of the tabernacle, and ate it. What was he telling them? Any thoughts on that? They still need to take care of themselves. They need to feed themselves. You see, the rest from labor was about recognizing who is the giver of things like daily bread. It's God that gives it, see? So he actually wants us to enjoy the work that he has done and to rest in that work. I try to take some of Wednesday off because I'm here so long so that I can teach you on a Wednesday. That rest is helpful so that I have the energy to do what's necessary for afternoon catechesis, divine service, choir practice, and so forth. Now, there's something else going on with David. Who is Jesus with respect to David? Son of David. That doesn't mean he's a direct descendant of David, I mean the next generation, but David was the king from the tribe of Judah, and the Messiah would come from the house of David, the Messiah who would be prophet, priest, and king, and the one who fulfilled the law. So by David and his disciples eating the showbread, not only were they resting in the good work of God's daily bread, but Jesus is showing himself to be greater than the law and the greater son of David who would fulfill the law. Of course, the Pharisees, who should have known the scriptures, should have identified these things, but they do not. Number four, what does the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath teach us about God's law? Kent? It's for our benefit. It's for our neighbor's benefit. Jim, did you have a... Okay. Not, but for our benefit in the sense of what is good for us and what is good for the neighbor. Okay? We are not, it also teaches this, we are not in service, finish the sentence, to the law. We live by faith in Christ. The law shows us our sin, but the law is going to describe what is good in terms of our relationship to God, the first three commandments, love for God, and then what is good for the neighbor, loving service to the neighbor. The Sabbath is not an end in itself. The Sabbath is where we receive from God. So also, the law is for our good. It describes what is good in God's order, in God's creation. And we're going to talk about that order tonight. Sometimes we think of the Ten Commandments as a list of do's and don'ts. The Pharisees did that. You're working, you're working, and they missed the entire point of the Third Commandment and the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is about God doing good to us, and the law really describes God's good gifts that he has given that he wants to protect for our benefit as individuals, as families, and for those we are called to love. The second table of the law describes what love for the neighbor looks like. Number five, is it lawful on the Sabbath? Let's see if you can do better than the Pharisees, right? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? 
which is it? To do good. So if your aged mother falls on Sunday and you're on your way to church, you don't say, Mom, I'm going to church. See you later. You take your mom to the hospital. She's got a broken hip or whatever. Is it lawful to do good or evil? You do good. But the goodness, notice, it's in service to mom. It's for her benefit. Uh, to save life or to kill? Duh, save. And notice how Jesus then, in the miracle, when they're silent, they can't answer. How diabolical. How filled with self-righteousness and impenitence these Pharisees were that they remained silent. Well, Jesus doesn't remain silent. On the Sabbath, he does good, one, and he saves life, two. Stretch out your hand, and the man, man's hand, arm was restored. You see, when Jesus says that, again, this is the idea of him being the fulfiller of the law. He's the one that does good. He's the one that saves life. That's why we need Sabbath. Sabbath is not about the work we do for God or the work of not working, but it's about God's work for us. That's what divine service is all about. The Didache divine service is where, by his word, he comes and meets you. Forgiving your sin, strengthening your faith. So number six, what does Jesus do on the Sabbath? And what does this teach us about God's law? He does good on the Sabbath. He saves life on the Sabbath. He saves souls from destruction on the Sabbath. And he does so by his word. So you see, the study of God's law doesn't see the law as an end in itself, but sees the law as that which orders our lives rightly, shows us our sin, and directs us to the only one who can fulfill the law, which is Christ the only one who loves his father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who loves us, his neighbor, even though we're sinners, in place of himself. And that love, in fulfillment of the law, comes to fruition in his death upon the cross. What motivated the Pharisees to attempt to keep the law? Yeah, self-centered motivation some benefit to accrue to themselves. What made it motivated Jesus in keeping the law? Love for us. And how did he do it? By his death upon the cross. All right. Um, I want to move into the um, fourth through the eighth commandments now, but I will, if you have a burning question that you'd like to ask on the text, I would consider entertaining it. Jim? Jesus is putting them in their place. That's right. He's trying to make them realize their complete misunderstanding of what David was about and how he is the son of David is fulfilling the law. Who do you think you are in this? Uh, I like to point out that the Gospels teach what the epistles 
expand upon or amplify. So St. Paul says in Romans, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. The Pharisees thought they were justified by their work of not working. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And what the law ultimately must direct us to, not only to repentance for our sin, but then to the remedy, who is Christ, the one who fulfills the law. All right. If you'll turn over the page then, you have the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments. And this is an overview. And the fourth, fifth, and the sixth commandments will especially be taken up in greater detail as a part of our Sunday morning Bible class later in October over a series of weeks, the family, marriage, and life retreat on Sunday morning where we will talk about the order of creation and God's ordering of things on the basis of the commandments. Wesley? The Herodians were a political... um, a party associated with King Herod at the time. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees got in league together to try to destroy Jesus. All right, I want to ask you the questions. What is the fourth commandment and what does this mean? And then engage in some discussion. What is the fourth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly. You know, I went back to check on this and did the proofreading, and obviously I missed it. I did the other ones and not here. Fourth commandment is we should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities. This is the explanation from the third We do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. So X that out. You can write the other one in there. Here again, this, we should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities. There's the negative. But honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. That's the positive. Each commandment has both the negative, what we're not to do, and the positive, what we are to do. But I put in parentheses here for you, God protects his gift of family. And I want you to understand there's implications to the word of God in general, and here, like the fourth commandment specifically. If the Lord God says, honor your father, That implies honor your father, Larry. That implies you have a father and you are your father's son. Is the word son or children mentioned in the commandment? No. So does that mean they're not there? You understand what I'm saying? Honor your father and your mother. Father and mother implies of necessity children because children are the fruit of father and mother, number one. Number two, it then orders the relationship. Okay? 
So Daniel, who's over you? Your father or you? Your father is. There's an ordering in that relationship. Are you a man? Is he a man? So in terms of their state of being as men, there's no difference. But in terms of God's economy, God's ordering, there's a big difference. I used to say with this commandment that the gift that God wanted to protect is his authority in the world, and that's not false. That's true. But the, given what we've been going through in society and culture, which is snowballing out of control, this gender dysphoria, you know, you can change whether you're a man or a woman, which is a lie, you can't do it, is an attack on God, it's an attack on God's order, and it's fundamentally an attack on marriage. So same-sex marriages and so forth, uh, transgenderism, it is all designed, and then uh, parents who are not informed by schools about what their children want to do, medical people who are not including fathers and mothers in the decisions of their minor children, not informing them about this. This is all a destruction of the family. So when I used to teach that God wants to protect his authority in the world, that's true. His authority in father and mother, his authority in civil government, but it's bigger than that. What he wants to protect is the fundamental building block of society and culture, which is the family. Adam and Eve were the first husband and wife who came together in one flesh, and from that one flesh union, Cain and Abel and the rest of the family was born. We also see the problem of sin there, where they fell into sin, Rejecting God's order, essentially. Because who, who was Adam's head? God. So when Adam throws off his head, abdicates his responsibility, it plunges not only Adam as an individual, but Adam and Eve as husband and wife and their family into sin. And though Cain and Abel had not yet been born... Their sin affected them, see. So the fourth commandment, God wishes not only to protect his gift of family, but to reconstitute it for us as Christians in repentance and faith in Christ so that there's forgiveness and redemption that holds our marriages and families together, not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of society. Jim? It, it is not a stretch at all. Because I think that now we see, and I keep coming up to an old movie car, and it's a hunchback and won't be back. And they, they had Charles Lawson portrayed as a hunchback. And they, they, put, a, they put a fool, they, they, they had to crown a fool in this, this party they were having. They put a crown on his head and they made him king for the day. And it seems as though that's what we're living through right now. There's been an abdication of, of God's plan by civil authority, and we, we 
forces are turning it against families, yet we've also advocated their responsibility, so therefore it calls into question the entire makeup of God's plan. Yes, and let me, let me I, got the, I should have got the handheld mic out before this so that the recording would pick up what you said a little bit better. Let me just recap on this. When civil authority is attacking the fundamental building block of marriage and family, in so it turns the order of God upside down. So there's a diabolical character to that. Society, all civilized societies and cultures, even those non-Christian, because the law is written in the heart, the law from God, have recognized since antiquity that the family is the fundamental building block, not government. That governmental authority, while it is from God, is mediated through the primary source of that in our human relationships, the family. So when, you, when society and culture turns it upside down, that's when you get uh, the kind of oppression that we've seen um, in totalitarian regimes and so forth. Yeah, well, okay, this goes then to um, a question about, which we'll talk about in our extended uh, retreat on family and marriage in this re regard. We can't get into all of the details tonight. However, we will say this, that it is our faith in the grace of God in Christ that teaches us that God wills to do us good when we submit to the civil authority, even if it is uh, overbearing. The best way to understand that here is Daniel with Larry. Larry is Daniel's father. Larry may make mistakes. His mistakes and failings as a father do not abrogate the call that Daniel has to honor him. And we see this in Jesus who presents himself before Pontius Pilate and submits to the injustice of that. He doesn't do anything that is contrary to God's law. We must obey God rather than men. But he does still honor that civil authority, even though the civil authority, in this case Pontius Pilate, had been acting unjustly in the condemnation of an innocent man. So we will talk about... Uh, those in the Sunday morning Bible class a, a little bit further. But I want you to see here, in the second table of the law, the fourth commandment is the first one in that list. So there is a relationship between the fourth and the fifth and the sixth especially. Uh, let's move on to the fifth. What is the, I think I've got this one right. What is the fifth commandment? You shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Now, I put in parentheses here what ought to be obvious. What is the good gift that God wants to protect? Life. But the reason I want you to see the connection with the fourth commandment the fourth commandment and God's establishing and ordering a family is more important than the protection of life.
because without the family intact, life is threatened. It doesn't come into existence, and then the health and welfare of children is threatened, which is what happens then with your civil authorities that have inverted uh, the model. Life itself is threatened. And all of the totalitarian regimes of the world, you have seen this kind of thing, uh, whether it's Nazism or communism, uh, you name it. But God protects his gift of life. So the family, under the fourth commandment, is the place where life is to be created, nurtured, and fostered. Okay? Now, let me, let me be crass about an example of the hierarchy, why the fourth commandment is, there, in our human relationships, I mean, before God, sin is sin, but in our human relationships, some things are more important than others. So, for example, if in a family, one of Larry's boys was to attack their mother, it is given to Larry as husband to intervene for the protection of the life of his mother, even if it means, if it was a violent child, um, the threat of death. So the responsibility of maintaining that family unit might mean, might mean self-defense or an intruder upon the home and this, this sort of thing. So, the fifth commandment, God wishes to protect the gift of life. Life is created and nurtured in family, fourth commandment. And I'm going to come back, I'm going to circle back after we finish a certain segment here. Moving on to the sixth commandment, what is the sixth commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. So in the parentheses here, God protects his gift of marriage and the state of being, male or female. I didn't use the word sexuality. The 1986 translation of the catechism used that term in place of the term chaste. It's an unfortunate term. Um, I think the decision on the part of the committee was that what does chastity mean? Well, it means sexually pure. Well, it includes that, but it includes a lot more than that. It includes mo modesty, uh, a humility, a loving disposition toward the opposite sex. It includes a, a gentleness and a kindness and an aura of living respectfully in what you say, in how you dress, and so forth. So to live a chaste and decent life in what you say and do is much broader. Uh, families, fathers and mothers, teach chastity to their children by teaching them the proper decorum of life. Little boys are taught how to treat little girls. And there's no, there's no sex component in that. 
there is the decorum of manners and the idea that you give yourself in the service and in the protection of another, which is a fundamentally manly thing to do. So masculinity is taught in terms of protection, care, not being harsh. All of that is under chastity here. So you shall not commit adultery means that those commitments of chastity, of modesty, of love, of faithfulness and fidelity and masculine protection of a woman and her feminine reception of the love and care of her husband, that's all included in chastity. So that's why I, 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 I expand upon it here. So that we lead a sexually pure and decent life, so that we lead a chaste and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. So in the parentheses, he protects the gift of marriage. But in the times that we're in, here again, the state of being. Kent, you are a man. That is how God has created you. Okay? Nicola is a woman. That is how God has created her. So God wishes, it's not on a sliding scale of, of human choice. The state of being that God has created is ultimately good and it is part of God's order. Two women cannot produce life. Two men cannot produce life. Life requires a man and a woman who become husband and wife and then father and mother. So you see how these three commandments describe well the order of creation, the sanctity of family, the gift of life that is created and nurtured in family, and how that rests upon the fidelity that is associated with the marital order between husband and wife. Now I'm going to let you take this if you have a question so that or a comment. My comment is that it, there's also a distinctive element about it. There's distinctiveness and role playing. That's correct. And, and there's roles that have been uh, muddied and there is this will to try to, uh, you know, the idea that men had certain responsibilities and uh, roles to play and women had other roles to play, that's frowned upon. That is frowned upon, but it's actually biblical, okay? Especially when we understand that the fundamental character of a husband, of a man, in that masculine order from God is one of self-giving love, protection, sacrifice. And in the biological order of God's creation, it is the man who sends the seed into the woman. And to be feminine is to receive the love and life of the husband. And then life is conceived, and then she carries and nurtures that life. So her capacity to be able to love and be mother and to give of herself is in direct proportion to how she has been cared for, upheld, and protected by her husband. So those three go together. Under the fourth commandment, God's protection of family. Under the fifth, of life that is nurtured and fostered in family. 
and the gift of marriage under the sixth commandment. Notice how in those commandments there is a negative and a positive, except with the sixth commandment. And a, a brief word of explanation here, during the Middle Ages, uh, the monastic life in which men and women took vows of celibacy and then entered into monasteries or convents was considered to be a holier life than the domestic life of being married and having family. Um, and that you, of course, in the medieval system, it was part of the way in which you earned God's favor. Okay? What Luther intentionally did in his explanation is we should fear and love God so that we positively lead a chaste and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. There's no negative prohibition to that free giving and receiving of love and life within that, within that union. Yes? Sorry, I don't want to talk too much, but yeah, I can't help but acknowledge that the celibacy commitment from the Roman church for clergy has been a curse on that church body as a result. That's an addition to God's word. That's an addition to God's law. Yeah, it's, it's an, an overturning of God's it's, word. Well, and it mm -hmm. also adds, and there's a curse associated with that. And look what's happened as a result. Yeah, I, I, do, not, uh, I do not disagree. Anytime God's order is overthrown, added to, substituted with something else, uh, it is fraught with danger. Okay, moving on then, if you are to have family life, and if you are to provide for life and foster life and live in marital love, it also involves property, possessions and income under the seventh commandment, and words by which we are supported and upheld under the eighth commandment in our relationships. So, I'll ask you now, what is the seventh commandment? You shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. So here God protects his gift of property. And what you notice or should in all of the commandments under the second table of the law, fourth through the 10th, which we'll get to in two weeks, is that what the law describes is love in its concrete expressions for the benefit of the neighbor. So one of the things that we need to hold up as Christians is not only that the law shows us what sin is, but we hold up as Christians what the law describes as good. In other words, we have a better way of life to offer the world than the world has. If you look at the world and the disorder in the world in terms of marriage and family and the use of property simply for self-indulgence, satisfying of appetites and desires of the flesh, does not lead to happiness. It does not lead to fulfillment and contentment but it leads to unhappiness. 
and discontent. Now, this doesn't mean that obedience to the law is the way of peace and contentment and happiness. But we, as Christians, embrace the goodness of what the law describes because ultimately it is a Christology. What do I mean by that? All of the positive things that the Catechism helps us see in the Ten Commandments really describe Jesus. So when we say this is, good, this is the good life, you want to know the good life? The good life is where in love you sacrifice yourself so that another might live, okay? That you honor your father and your mother as Jesus did with Mary and Joseph and before Pontius Pilate and how God accomplished good things out of that uh, and so forth down through the line. It's the good life because it is describing concretely the life of love that Jesus lived for us actively in that he never sinned and we believe in him, but also then passively in his loving sacrifice for us upon the cross. So he's the one that fulfills the law. But as Christians, we embrace the goodness of God's order and design as the Ten Commandments give it to us because of what Christ has done for us. Finally, what is the Eighth Commandment? You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. God protects his gift of a good name and reputation. I'd like to conclude this very, very brief overview of the fourth through the eighth commandments by connecting the fourth and the eighth to the gospel of God's undeserved love. Okay? I honor my father or mother as a Christian, even though they are sinners, because God not only honored me in giving his son for my salvation, but I see the good that God did through Jesus' obedience to Mary and Joseph and even in his submission to Pontius Pilate. In other words, the cross teaches us that when we live by faith in Christ's sacrifice, even and especially when we suffer injustice as he did, God promises to accomplish his good. Under the Eighth Commandment, defend him, speak well of him, explain everything about him in the kindest way. In the parish this week, under the Eighth Commandment, the family Bible story is from Luke, where Jesus prays for the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and scribes who delivered him to be crucified, the soldiers who nailed him to the cross and taunted him, and everyone else who hurled insults at him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see in that action how the gospel of God's undeserved love and forgiveness is concretely in operation. They absolutely all deserved eternal punishment and condemnation. But he spoke a word of 
grace, and forgiveness. Talk about putting the best construction on everything or explaining everything in the kindest way. You certainly see it there. So the most important way to look at the law is just as we saw in Mark today. You know, the Sabbath was not made, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man, for his benefit, for his good. And ultimately, it is in Jesus that we see the fulfillment of the law. And that's what our last stanzas of the hymn, 581, teach. We prepare for the sacrament, singing 581, stanzas 11 and 12. near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we offer before you our common supplications for the well-being of your church throughout the world. So guide and govern her by your Holy Spirit that all who profess themselves Christians may be led into the way of truth and hold the faith in unity of spirit, in the bond of peace, and in righteousness of life. Send down upon all ministers of the gospel and upon the congregations committed to their care the healthful spirit of your grace, that they may please you in all things. Behold in mercy all who are in authority over us. Supply them with your blessing, that they may be inclined to your will and walk according to your commandments. We humbly ask your abiding presence in every situation that you would make known your ways among us. Preserve those who travel, satisfy the desires of your creatures, help those who call upon you in any need, that they may have patience in the midst of suffering, and according to your will, be released from their affliction. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who, having created all things, took on human flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. For our sake, he died on the cross and rose from the dead to put an end to death, thus fulfilling your will and gaining for you a holy people. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The body of Christ given for 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 you.
The body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Amen. body of Christ given for you. The body and blood of Christ given and shed for you. Amen. The body of Christ given for you. 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 Body of Christ given for you. The 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 body of Christ given for you.
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. We give thanks to you, Almighty God, that you have refreshed us through this salutary gift. And we implore you that of your mercy you would strengthen us through the same in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.